If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 12 to 25 this morning. Now, if you're good at math, and from what I know of this congregation, a lot of y'all are very good at math, uh, you're probably wondering what happened to Matthew 13 through uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, And the answer is, uh, I actually already preached that sermon here. Uh, So if y'all remember back to June... Uh, when I was here uh, candidating, Uh, that was the sermon I preached um, here, and that would have fit in the series here. Uh, So here's the short version of that story. That is the story of the baptism of Jesus, which is the beginning of his ministry when the Spirit descends upon him and God sets him apart and empowers him for the work that he will do. Uh, And God reminds him that he is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And because of the gospel, God says that same thing to us. In Jesus. And so, what we're going to look at this morning is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just been set apart, he's just been baptized, he's just been washed by John the Baptist and anointed with the Spirit, and now the work begins. That's where our passage picks up this morning. Uh, So, let's read it together. This is Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, when Jesus heard, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those affected with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word for us this morning. Our passage opens in verse 12. John the Baptist has just been arrested. Uh, And we know from Luke chapter 3 why he's been arrested. And the reason John has been arrested is he has spoken out against the wickedness of Herod the Tetrarch. 
Uh, Herod the Tetrarch was the son of Herod the Great, who had tried to seek and kill Jesus when he had just been born. So his son now reigns in this region, and John spoke out against various kinds of wickedness and immorality in Herod's life and reign, and Herod put him in prison for it. And so when Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been arrested and put in prison, he flees uh, to the region of Galilee. He goes back up north, and he actually goes from Nazareth, his hometown in Galilee, uh, to another town called Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. And truth be told, this is a strange place for the Messiah to begin his work. All of the expectations of the Messiah were that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would throw off the Roman oppressors and he would restore Israel to greatness. He would make the kingdom what it once was. Instead, Jesus, the Messiah, is beginning his ministry here in Galilee, which is this sort of insignificant frontier Region with kind of all of the problems that come with frontier regions, loose morals and insignificant people and the like. Matthew tells us the reason for this, though. The reason Jesus has this unexpected beginning to his ministry is that it fulfills the words of prophecy, the prophecy that Kevin just read to us from Isaiah chapter 9, that the Messiah's work, that salvation would come from the land of darkness, the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, the region of Galilee. This fulfills prophecy. And so, in insignificant Galilee, Jesus begins his ministry. Verse 17 tells us a little bit about what that looks like. He is preaching, and he's not even preaching a sermon that he wrote. He is preaching the sermon that John the Baptist was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And friends, there's some important things we can note about this message. For one thing, it's important for us to note that the response of repentance, or that repentance rather, is a response to the arrival of the kingdom, not something that brings in the kingdom itself. Remember, we talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees especially believed that if God's people would just be holy, if they would just do the right stuff, then God would restore the kingdom. For them, the kingdom was a response to God's, or to the people's holiness. Jesus is saying, that's not the case. The kingdom is here. Our response to it is to repent. And repentance is at its most basic Turning away from sin. Uh, I've given you all the last two Sundays my favorite definition of repentance. I'll repeat it again because it's so good. Repentance means turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of my God. And as our knowledge grows at those three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. That comes from J.I. Packer. Repentance is the heart of life in the kingdom. Repentance is how we begin in the kingdom, 
But repentance is also how we continue in the kingdom. It is the heart of the Christian life. We are constantly coming to see our sin more deeply. We are constantly coming to understand ourselves more truly. And we are constantly understanding the character of our God more fully. And as we understand any one of those in greater depth, we are led again and again to repentance. Repentance in the Christian life might initially look like stopping bad behaviors, but as we grow in the gospel, repentance itself begins to deepen. And we begin to realize that even the good things that we do are done with mixed motivations, are done with a heart that is not fully concerned with the glory and love of God and neighbor. Friends, our repentance deepens. But there's good news for us. And the good news is simply this, if repentance is the heart of life in the kingdom, then there is no one who is so bad. They are beyond the reach of God's grace. And there is no one who is so good that they are not constantly in need of that same grace. Repentance is the heart of life in the kingdom. Jesus shows us that as he begins his ministry here. But the beginning of his ministry continues, and as it unfolds, verses 18 to 22 show us Jesus calling the first disciples. And those disciples are Andrew and Simon, who is called Peter. We're going to talk a lot more about Peter uh, in the coming months. He is an amazing person. Uh, And what these guys are doing, they're fishermen, and they are casting nets into the sea. They are fishing, right? And Jesus walks by them and he says, follow me. Now, follow me was sort of rabbi speak in the ancient world. That was how a rabbi would invite a student to come and live with him and apprentice with him and and learn from him. But what's interesting is it was more normal in the ancient world for students to petition rabbis. They would go and wait outside the rabbi's door and ask if they could study with the rabbi. And if he says, follow me, then great, they're in. Jesus instead goes recruiting. He recruits students. He says, follow me. And every time he says, follow me, those students follow. So Jesus says to Andrew and to Peter, follow me. And they leave their nets. It's unclear if that means in the boat or in the ocean. Uh, They might have just tossed them in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, follow me. Those nets could still be down there. They leave their nets and they follow him. And then Jesus comes across another set of fishermen, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, And Zebedee apparently was a rather notable guy in the area because his name appears like three times in this story. Like people would have known, oh, the sons of Zebedee. And they're sitting there in the boat with their dad, fixing their net so that they can go fishing again. Jesus says, follow me. And they leave their boat, they leave their dad, and they follow Jesus immediately. You see, friends, life in the kingdom isn't only about turning away from sin. It's about turning towards Jesus. And in these words here, in these verses, we actually get a hint of the character of discipleship. Because what we see Jesus doing as he calls these disciples is he is calling them away from the primary ways that they would have constructed an identity for themselves. In the ancient world, work and family was was it. 
And Jesus is saying, follow me. And they leave their work. They leave their family. Jesus is saying that no longer are those going to be the primary ways that you build an identity for yourself. Instead, from now on, you're going to be defined by me and what my love will do to and for you. Now, friends, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that the gospel is calling all of us to leave our families uh, or to leave our jobs. Uh, That's not the point. The point is the gospel always calls us out of the ways we try to build an identity for ourselves. And it reminds us that our fundamental identity as God's people is that we are those who are in Christ. We are defined by Jesus and what his love does to and for us. Just like uh, in the passage uh, of Jesus' baptism, we are reminded again and again that we are God's beloved children with whom he is well pleased. That is who you are in Christ. But we not only get a new identity, Jesus also gives us a job to do. Uh, You see it when he tells Andrew and Peter, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What Jesus is doing is he is calling Andrew and Peter and John and James away from the way that they made an identity, but he's saying, I'm going to make you part of what I am doing in the world. I'm going to make you part of my mission. And the mission of Jesus is the same as the mission of God. And God's mission has been the same from the first page of the Bible to the last. And it's simply this, to fill the earth with his glory. That is what God is doing. The entire Bible is the story of God filling the earth with his glory. He makes Adam and Eve and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At that point, they haven't sinned. At that point, they are perfectly bearing the image of God. And he's saying, I want my people bearing my image, filling the earth, reflecting my glory into every corner of the creation. And friends, that doesn't change because of sin. In fact, what it means is when Jesus saves us, Jesus is restoring us to that original purpose for humankind. It's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, go and make disciples of the nations, fill the earth again. And you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22 shows the earth full of the glory of God. When Jesus says, follow me to his disciples and to us, he is saying, you are going to be part of that mission. And so friends, not all of us are called to vocational ministry. Not all are called to be pastors or missionaries or working for some kind of Christian organization. But every part of God's people, every member of God's people is called to this mission. One theologian put this really well. His name's Christopher Wright. And I actually gave you this quote uh, as part of the prelude meditation. Uh, But he says this. He says, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. Friends, that'll change your whole understanding of what this life is about. 
God does not have a mission for his people. He doesn't save a group of people and then try to think of a way to keep them busy so that they don't get into trouble. God has a mission to fill the earth with his glory, and so he gathers a people together that will be about his business, that will reflect life as it was meant to be in the world. And that will change everything about the way you think about your work and your family and your neighbors. And even something like putting flowers on your dining room table can become part of the mission of God because you're putting those flowers there to protest against the ugliness and the despair in the world because of sin. Everything is part of God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. In Christ, we become ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Our ordinary lives are part of and caught up in and swept into this grand story, this grand mission that God has to fill the earth with his glory. But the ministry continues, and the passage here continues. And in verses 23 to 25, Jesus goes throughout the region of Galilee, teaching and preaching, but also healing. And it says here in verse 24 that he heals all kinds of different diseases and chronic conditions, even things like demonic oppression and mental illness. Uh, In fact, in the Greek, uh, the word that's translated epileptics had a dual meaning of um, sort of those who had been struggling with mental health, of mental illness, uh, as well as like seizure disorders. Jesus is healing everything that sin has touched and broken in the human experience, and great crowds begin to follow him. His fame spreads throughout the region. The kingdom has come. I mean, that's the point. The kingdom of heaven has broken in, and we get a hint here of what that kingdom is like. Because, friends, Jesus doesn't just preach and teach. Jesus heals, which means the kingdom is not primarily about information, but about transformation. The kingdom is the place where sin and death are coming untrue and are being replaced instead with joy. One commentator, I think, captures this really well. He says, Jesus does not even concern himself with the accepted teaching of the rabbis that physical and mental ailments were the result of personal or family sin. There is suffering before him, suffering that has been offered to him, malformation, mental anguish, paralysis of soul and body, torment and oppression of all kinds, the full gamut of human subjugation to the forces of evil and God in his utter simplicity, can only do one thing. Heal it. And turn an ocean of suffering into a great swell of rejoicing. Friends, Jesus heals the broken in front of him. They're not just restored at that point to health. They actually become pictures of his grace. They become signposts of his kingdom. And friends, I think what's important as we think about this passage, as we look at these three little scenes together, is we have to realize when Jesus says, repent, when Jesus says, believe, 
When Jesus says, follow me, and when Jesus says, be healed, these are not just idle encouragements. These are the words of the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1. These are the words of the one who is himself the eternal word of God, as John tells us in John 1. And that the word of God does not return empty, but always accomplishes its purposes, as the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55. Friends, in precise theological language, what we would say is the word of God does stuff. It does stuff. When God speaks, it happens. God says, let there be light, and light exists. God says, let there be duck-billed platypi, and all the leftover stuff comes together and makes the duck-billed platypus. And it's amazing because the other day I called my dog from down the hall and she looked at me and went back to sleep. My word does nothing. God's word does stuff. So when Jesus says, be healed, when Jesus says, repent, when Jesus says, believe, when Jesus says, follow me, it's good news. Because what God requires of us God provides to us. What God wants from us, he gives to us. God doesn't say repent or believe or follow me and then stand back disappointed that we failed to do that perfectly. Over and over again, the scriptures remind us that everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift we have received from the hand of our Heavenly Father. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8. Repentance is a gift, Acts 11.18. Obedience is a gift, Philippians 2.12 and 13. At no point in our lives are we mustering up faith on our own power. At no point in our lives are we repenting because we just get it more. At no point in our lives are we walking in obedience because suddenly we're just better than we used to. To be. And friends, this is humbling and this is encouraging. And it's humbling because it means we don't come to Jesus in our own power. We don't stay in Jesus in our own power. We did not come to Jesus because we were just more honest about the way our hearts were or the way the world really is. And we don't come to Jesus because we get it better than other people. We come to Jesus because Jesus says, follow me. We come to Jesus because he says, repent and believe, and we can't but do that. And it's encouraging. Because if you're anything like me, we're a mess. Like, my best attempts to be a good Christian are just really half-hearted. And my methods or my, my motivations are always mixed. But what this reminds me is that it's not up to me. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. From the first to the last, salvation is not something we do. It's something Jesus does for us. God gives to us what he wants from us. What God requires, God provides. And that's what this passage is really about. This passage shows us what Jesus is always doing to and for us. 
Because in Jesus, the God who spoke the universe into being, who made galaxies and grasshoppers, plants and platypi, blue whales and bacteria, that God has taken on flesh and has come into the world. And he has come to us in all of our insignificance, in all of our obscurity, in all of our sin, and he has brought the kingdom with him. And he calls us who couldn't and wouldn't come. And he gives faith to us who couldn't believe and gives repentance to us who wouldn't repent. And he makes us part of his mission in the world. He empowers our obedience. He heals us from sin and death with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And he makes us pictures of his grace. In 1973, the greatest racehorse of all time won the Triple Crown, Secretariat. And uh, Secretariat, uh, as most famous, he still holds the track record or the, the record for all three of the races that are part of the Triple Crown. It's just an amazing animal. And sometimes when I'm having a bad day, uh, I get online and I watch a video of Secretariat running the Belmont Stakes. And if you know anything about that race, Secretariat won the race by 31 lengths. He set the track record for the Belmont Stakes. It is unbelievable. You don't win a horse race by that many lengths. And this video I watch has a bunch of people who were there kind of commenting on what was happening as it happened. And one guy as Secretariat rounds the home stretch says, it was like God leaned down and whispered into the ear of one of his creatures, run. And run he did. It was the way the world was meant to be. This creature was doing the thing for which it was made. And friends, what I want you to see this morning is that when Jesus says to us, repent, believe, follow me, be healed, that is God stooping down and whispering into our ears, run. He is making us what we are meant to be. His grace is restoring us to what we were made to be. All for His glory and our good. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that what You require from us, You give, from, you give to us. Father, we thank you that you give us the grace of faith. You give us the grace of repentance. You give us the grace of obedience. The Christian life is not up to us because we are held more tightly by you than we could ever hold ourselves in this life. Father, be at work in us. Make us pictures of your grace. Make us signposts in your kingdom. Let us be about your mission to fill the earth with your glory. Show us what that looks like in our daily lives and the ordinary things you've given us to do. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work there, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us more and more like Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.